Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open up your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 to 12. Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Last week we looked at the uh, we looked at the account of the um, shepherds out in their fields and the appearance of the angels, the multitude of the heavenly hosts to them. And we kind of have an opposite thing this week, where instead of it being, you know, the, a parallel maybe would be long haul truck drivers at a truck stop or a rest stop, all the diesel smoke sort of acrid, the sheep the smell of the fields where they grazed. This week, it's scholars. This week, the ones who come to worship Jesus are not the shepherds, but they're scholars, they're they're dignitaries. And so let's uh, read the word of God, and I'm sure you'll all be very thankful to be able to stand out of respect for the word of God. Not that your heart respects the word of God, but at least standing might help your heart respect the word of God, right? Okay, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know this both from Matthew and from Luke. Luke tells us, that Joseph came up to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family or lineage of David. And there Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. And this is in fulfillment, his birth in in Bethlehem, of Micah's prophecy, which says in Micah 5.2, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now, if you listen to that, you'll, you'll have noted something, which is that in the middle of that prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, God, through his prophet Micah, says, one will go forth for me to be ruler of Israel. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and another ruler of Israel had been born there, and that was King David, the greatest ruler that Israel ever had. And so the prophecy was that as great King David was born here, another ruler of Israel is going to be born here. 
So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, again around six miles southwest of Jerusalem. And after his birth, while he was still there in Bethlehem with his parents, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem who were intent on finding him and worshiping him. Now who were these Magi or wise men? Either, either translation is, 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 is accurate. Were they kings? You know, we sing, we three kings of Orient are. Well, there's no reason really to think that they were kings. There are a lot of accretions to this story that have come to us down through the centuries. And uh, this is just another one. Certainly they were dignitaries. It's very clear from the gifts they brought and from their knowledge that these were leaders, these were dignitaries. So the shepherds were not leaders, they weren't dignitaries, but then as God opened, opened the, the, the curtain to show the glory of the baby of Bethlehem with the multitude of the heavenly host out in the fields with the shepherds, the angels, now he opens it up by having dignitaries come. And they have been led not by the heavenly host, they have been led by the star. Okay? Coming from the east, most likely Persia, Babylon, it's the country today that we call Iran. And it was part of the heritage of this, this, this kind of person at that time in that place that they came from a long line of scholars, and the scholars from their area established. We're told by Hendrickson, the foundation for the planetary world system for time computation and for the calendar. And so obviously stars are important to them, right? Planet stars. Um, now how many of them were there? We don't know. Uh, Chrysostom, early church father, says 14 most people today say three, and why? Only because they're gold, frankincense, and myrrh, three gifts. That's the only reason people say three. But of course, you know, you could have three gifts given by two people or 30 people, you know, one for every 10. So we don't know how many there were. Uh, what were their names? Well, traditionally, again, what's been said is that their names were Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar. But this doesn't come from Scripture, it's just tradition. Um, when did they come? They came in the days of Herod. And they probably came as much as two years after Jesus' birth. We know they didn't come immediately at his birth because they didn't meet him in the manger like the shepherds do. They met him in a house. So for some reason, uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus were still in uh, Bethlehem. And by this time, they were in a house. And we think it was somewhere within two years only because we read later in this chapter, in verse 16, that when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, you know, they left without coming back and reporting to him, he became very enraged and sent and slew, killed all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So the fact that they're in a house now, the fact that Herod killed every everybody two years and younger, indicates that this was a while after the birth, sometime in the first couple of years of Jesus' life. Now let's look at verse 2. The Magi arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, what was this star? Well, again, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about it by astronomers, by scholars of various sorts. And there are a few options. Uh, some think that it was a constellation that had some special connection, significance, as being the sign of Judah. Some think it was a comet, Halley's Comet, made an appearance in 11 BC, although that was probably too early. There was another comet that was noted around 4 B.C. Jesus was probably born around 6 B.C. It may have been a comet we don't know about. It may also have been the conjunction of, of Jupiter and Mars and Saturn, which is calculated to have been taken place around 7 or 6 B.C. It might have been a nova. Uh, some astronomers back in 1977 uh, 
published an article in, an, in one of the astronomical uh, journals, one of the astronomy journals, in which they identified a nova that should have been around 5 or 4 BC, and the dates would fit um, regardless. It's clear that this is God's specific leadership of the Magi, all right? And so it's supernatural because it leads them to Jesus, just as the angels were supernatural leading them, the shepherds, to Jesus. And so we have them go into Jerusalem, and they have been led there by a star. In verse 4 we read, Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, it makes sense that they would go to the civil magistrate, the, the political leader in the community, because they knew that the star was indicating this is the king of the Jews, this is the country of the Jews, this is the capital of the country of the Jews. I'll go to the top leader of the capital of the country of the Jews because the king of the Jews has just been born. All right? So they end up in front of Herod. Now, who's Herod? Well, Herod is um, the king of the Jews at that time. He's appointed by the Roman Empire. So look at him as being like, uh, what's his face, an Afghan appointed by America. Kars, Kar, Karzai, you know. Much loved by the Taliban, right? In other words, Herod was despised by the Jews, absolutely despised. He lived off of their, ta- their, their taxes, and he was the visible manifestation of the hated Roman Empire that the Jews could do nothing about. And no matter how much Afghans hate foreign powers, I assure you that the hatred of a foreign power occupying your country is a direct function of your particular ethnic group's pride And I assure you that the pride of Jews is intense. And so they hated this guy. They hated being under the authority of Rome. And so here's Herod. Now Herod has been at the top of this country now for 35 years. And you would think that a guy who has been in that position for 35 years has a certain amount of calmness and stability, equanimity at this point, doesn't feel threatened, right? But when they come to him and ask where the king of the Jews is, it's clear he is completely threatened. Now, why would a man be threatened who's been in the position for 35 years? Well, it's not because he thinks that this little baby is going to overthrow him, right? By the time this baby is 15, he's going to have been over the country for 50 years. In other words, he'll be dead. By the time Jesus posed any threat to him, he'd be dead. So why is he insecure? Well, of course, what I haven't said yet is he was a very wicked man. Everybody knew Herod was a very wicked man. And you know something? The wicked never sleep well. The Bible tells us that it's the righteous who sleep well. The righteous who are fearless. Right? Little grandson here, Jackson, gone now. Name for Stonewall Jackson. You remember what Stonewall Jackson said? Southern Civil War general. Now's your time to shine, son. Tell him what Jackson, Stonewall Jackson said. Uh, did you go to school? Did he go to school? Do you remember? Was he there? Yeah, I know you know what I'm talking about. Anybody can quote it? Come on, Andrew, certainly. Okay, Ben, stand up and hold forth. Yeah. He was never afraid in a battlefield because he said, I'm as safe sleeping in my bed 
as I am out at the front of the battle. And it's very ironic because he ends up dying from friendly fire. I don't know if you knew that, but he did. It's a great biography of him uh, written by Dabney as aide-de-camp. And so here Herod is. He's in his position by virtue of what? He's in his position by virtue of the power of the United States of America. But not that of Rome. He's been there 35 years. Some scholars from the East, from out in, you know, out in the countries east of him come to him and tell him that they've been following a star which is a sign of the birth of the king of the Jews and this guy is having a fit. So what does he do? He calls in the religious leaders and wants to know where the Messiah is supposed to be born because everybody knows the Messiah is the king of the Jews. Now who would those scholars have been? Well, what it says is, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. Now, who are the chief priests and scribes? Well, they're me, right? They're Stephen Baker, who leads the pastor's college. They're David Wegner. They're David Canfield and Lawrence. In other words, they're the officers of the church and the officers of the rabbinical schools, which are their equivalent of our seminaries, colleges, universities. So they call in the intellectuals who lead the people, and they say to them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And of course, intellectuals being intellectuals, they have a ready answer. They said to him in response, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You don't feel any defensiveness or any fear, any antagonism or any hostility at all from them in this, do you? Not at all, no. They asked them a question, they gave them the answer. The answer is very straightforward, right? So how do you account for the fact that in About 33 years, they're screaming about this baby who's now grown up to be a 33-year-old man. Crucify him. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Well, the one thing that's happened in between this simple answer they give and when they're screaming to crucify him The only little thing that's happened is what? Jesus and John the Baptist have preached. It's the only little thing that's happened is that John the Baptist announced and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus began to preach, calling them to repentance. Now, there are other things involved. Jesus did not fulfill their desire for an armed revolt against Rome. He apparently had lots of power, but he didn't use it to revolt against the occupying power. That was a big disappointment. But don't make any mistake about it. The central issue was that Jesus exposed our sin, our sin. And that's why in 33 years, these same men were screaming, crucify him. But at this point, it's hypothetical. He's a baby, you know, and a baby's nobody's enemy. And, well, we know where the baby's supposed to be born. It's Bethlehem, you know. That's where kings are born. It's where David was born. Micah prophesies it. And so they're just reciting the academic's answer to an academic question. On this verse, verse 4, Calvin says this. He says, all godless men readily subscribe to God in general terms. But when God's truth begins to press them more closely, they spew out the venom of their spleen. 
As long as the godless believe that they're losing nothing, they allow God and Scripture a measure of respect. But when it comes to close range, in other words, up close and personal, and Christ engages in battle with their self-seeking, greed, luxury, false confidence, hypocrisy, and deceptions, then they forget all self-control and rush into a frenzy. And this is you. This is you. You love Jesus as long as he's a carol at the Walmart coming over the PA system, you know, and little kids reciting Luke 2. But when through the Holy Spirit, Jesus exposes your sin, make no mistake about it, separate from the power of God, you hate him. You hate Jesus. Because Jesus is holy. He's perfect. I mean, we know this is true because we even hate our brother and sister that's better than we are. (laughs) And they're anything but holy. Just a little bit of getting a leg up on us, (laughs) you know? And that's enough for us to hate our brother and sister. Or our wife, you know, she has devotions every day. Why does she have to leave her Bible open on the couch like that? I know she's better than I am. Now, I've never thought that myself, but I've, I've been in counseling sessions with people who, who have confessed to me. You know, just Mary Lee's little Bible on the couch open. It's like, <sighs> and here is Jesus, and Jesus is perfectly Verse 7, then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So here we have this wicked tyrant scheming. And we know he's scheming because it says secretly. He calls them in. He wants to hide his true motives from other people. Other people would be smart enough, having had experience with him, to know what he was thinking. And so he does it secretly. Magi don't know him. They don't know his track record, you know. So he calls them in. And he says to them that he wants to know the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me. And why? He says, So that I too may come and worship him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Herod, why? (laughs) Granny, what big ears you have. (laughs) Yeah, Herod all of a sudden is a worshiper of the only true God. He done got religion. And and we see this over and over again. The, The most wicked deeds, the most wicked deeds in the world are cloaked under the guise of religion. Honestly, it boggles my mind that every Muslim in the world is not screaming about what has been done in the name of Islam. It boggles your mind that the whole world just watches 150 children slaughtered. And nobody says anything about Islam. The most wicked things in the world are done in the name of religion. And here he is, under the name of religion, saying, come back and tell me what you find, because I want to go and worship him too. And of course, he had no intent of worshiping him. His intent was what? His intent was to kill the baby. I've never forgotten... You know, I've thought a lot about bloodshed because the Bible constantly condemns bloodshed. Constantly, 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 constantly says God hates the shedding of innocent blood. It just never stops saying that. And from the time I've been little, I've looked around at the rule of law around me, you know, that you know, they may hunk their horn at me. I might hunk, my, but I don't want to kill them. They don't want to kill me. And that's the most conflict I've seen in my life. I mean, not 
Not really. I, I have stories to tell. But And then all of a sudden I thought about bloodshed and I thought, well, I hadn't thought about abortion. And then I remember after realizing that abortion was just the slaughter of unborn children, then I was reading this uh, collection of short vignettes, short stories by uh, veterans from the war in Vietnam. I'll never forget reading this one by this Marine who was talking about a firefight. And in the middle of the firefight, a woman and her baby ran out into the middle of the bullets. And he said, um, I don't remember these words exactly, but he said something like, uh, none of us... None of us wanted to shoot in her direction. And then he said, because a baby is nobody's enemy. And I've never forgotten that. Because, of course, the truth is, we look at Herod and we think, what a despicable man. That he would go into that village and slaughter, not just in the village, but out in the... Out who knows how far from the village, all the babies from two years and under to make sure that he killed little baby Jesus. We look at it, it was despicable. But it's going on constantly all around us, our little, little children, yours, mine, our neighbors. They're being slaughtered. It's not true that a baby's nobody's enemy. Otherwise, we wouldn't have abortion. You think about uh, Pharaoh in Egypt commanding the midwives to make sure that all the male babies of the Israelites died. It's amazing how the rich and powerful hate babies. Isn't it? You know, we export our aid to Africa. And the first thing we do is get Africans to stop making love and having babies. Why? Because rich people hate babies. Herod was just a normal, rich, powerful man. And he was not going to allow any child who had any claim on his power of 35 years to threaten him in any way. And when it came down to it, he not only sought to kill that baby, but just to make sure he had a margin of error that was huge. Two years, all the children, two years and under, in Bethlehem and out in the hinterlands. And he cloaks his scheming by saying, so that I too may come and worship him. Then we read, after hearing the king, this is Herod, they, the Magi's, went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Now, what's interesting about this? Well, one thing that's interesting is that apparently when they were in Jerusalem, the star wasn't leading them anymore because they had to go and ask, where is he going to be born, right? And then all of a sudden, when they find out it's Bethlehem, then the star goes in front of them again. And even to the point of leading them to the actual house, whatever this was, this is the place, that's what it said. That's interesting, isn't it? There's another thing really interesting here. You know what it is? What's really interesting here is all those religious scholars, all the Jews that this little baby was king over, all the evangelical Presbyterian Baptist Christians, all the seminary professors and all the elders and all the deacons, Not one of them went. Not one of them went. Only the Gentiles, the goyim. How do you figure that one out? Why do you think there weren't any of God's people that went? And why do you think God includes this detail of the birth of his son? Well, I don't see how you can see these wise men leaving Jerusalem 
and showing up at Jesus' house without an entourage, without all the city. What it actually says about the city is that the city shared with Herod. What? Did you see it up above? Take me up one screen, please. Take me up. Oh, I'm sorry, two. Do you see in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled? And then do you see what it says afterwards? And all Jerusalem with him. Now, listen, if you'd gone to all those people in Jerusalem and asked them how much they liked being under President Obama, what would they have said? They would have had a litany of complaints, nationalized health care and on and on and on, right? And yet, when the king of the Jews is announced, what does it say? It says that Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would God's people be disturbed to hear that the king of the Jews, the Messiah, has been born? Why? And here's where you find out whether you have any self-knowledge at all. The reason that they were disturbed was that men always become committed to their sin and to the smell of it and prefer their sin and the smell of it to the freedom of Jesus Christ. Remember how scripture talks about the dog returning to its vomit? Remember that? And you say, why would a dog do that? But every one of you has seen a dog do that. And that's used as an analogy for us of how we come to freedom in Christ. And then we go back to where? To our vomit. Or in the Old Testament, the analogy is what? In the Old Testament, the analogy is going back to Egypt. And so here we have the people of God, the Messiah's been born, the king of the Jews, he's a Jew, he's not the hated Romans, they complain about the Romans constantly. For 35 years they've been under Herod, who is oppressive and wicked, they spent their entire lives listening to Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity complain and curse these men. And they prefer that to worshiping him. They prefer that. This is how Satan works in us, making us love our bondage and turn away from the freedom of Jesus. Every single one of you probably has a besetting sin And every single day you repent of it, and every single day you return to your vomit. You know that you shouldn't do it. But you love how much you hate it. And you hate how much you love it. And you find a law within you, a law of sin and death. And what you wish you wouldn't do, you do, and what you wish you did do, you don't. And then when you see your wife's Bible open on the couch, you get angry. This is us. This is you. And so none of them went with the wise men. The Gentiles came among the Jews, God's people, and they proceeded alone. And all Jerusalem was up in arms. Disturbed. After coming to the house, verse 10, well, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. And you would think that that would be enough to describe their joy, but then it says, with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. No English composition professor would let you get away with that. Redundant. So it must be very important that you know these dudes were absolutely ecstatic. And where was Jerusalem? Where were the people of God? Where were the pastors and elders? Back. And then it says, verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And wouldn't you have loved to have seen that, Mary? 
Wouldn't you have loved to see Jesus with his mother? That would have been so sweet. And generally, when you see a mother with her child, is it the kind of thing that makes you fall down on your face? No, your heart is soft and you smile and and it's a great joy, but you don't fall down on your face. But we see, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. You know how our musicians are always prodding us that our bodies enter into worship? Do you remember that? And you know how this, the first, you know how we have a Bill of Rights as a country, right? You know we have a Bill of Rights. And, and the first right of white Presbyterians is what? The first right is that we never ever have to move our bodies in worship. Remember I said this earlier? When I came to this town to another church, and I came to their worship services, I noticed that there was no call to worship, and that when worship began, they would just keep sitting. And so I went into a staff meeting, and I said to the other pastors and the music director, I said, could we please stand and have a call to worship and begin our worship standing? And you wouldn't believe the argument against it. Like, God knows our hearts. God, God doesn't need us to do anything with our bodies. He knows whether or not we worship him. And then inevitably, you know, the arguments that I'm not going to be a hypocrite with my body. And of course, the truth was they weren't hypocrites with their body. Right? Listen, don't ever pass over the parts of Scripture that talk about bodies in the presence of God. Don't ever do it. If your body is unable to fall before God, what makes you think that when you get to heaven, you're going to do it? You remember what John Donne says? While we're here at the door, tune our lips that what we're to do there, we do here before. Remember that? What do you think? You think it's knowing how to sing C? Middle C? Perfect pitch? That's not what Dunn's talking about. Dunn's talking about humble me, humble me, humble me. And there's no better way of being humbled than to kneel and to fall on your face and to lift your hands and to stand, right? Your body is, leads your heart and your mind. And so we see these with these dignitaries, they get in the presence of a mother and her child, and it says, they fell to the ground, worshiped them, and then opening their treasures. And so what we see is when their hearts are worshiping God, what automatically comes is the most precious things of their land are thrown at the feet of the baby. The most precious things they have. You know, you're never going to get somebody to fall on their face and worship Jesus Christ by telling him to write a check. What you need to do is tell him to fall on his face and worship Jesus, and then he won't notice that he writes his check. His right hand won't know what his left hand is doing. He'll give you his car. He'll give you his house. He'll give you everything that's precious to him because his heart is on its face in front of Jesus. And so gold, frankincense, myrrh, you know, Florida grapefruit, oranges, Whatever is precious, they brought. And they gave it to Jesus. And God used this to support Mary and Joseph and Jesus at this time. So sweet. And it wasn't a superficial offering, but it was true. Now, let me make a couple points and we'll be done. First of all, I want to... Uh, focus on the uh, magi, on the wise men. We live in a university community 
And in a university community, everybody respects and honors the scholars, right? The academics, the people with PhDs, our world revolves around them, right? Some of you are trying to get that degree. And I want you to see that these were scholars and that God gave them the revelation of Jesus Christ. They studied and they were goyim, they were Gentiles, and God directed them to Jesus Christ. And so one application of this is, we must love professors. We must love them. Because that's, it, God is pleased to take professors and to lead them to the cross. Remember how the Bible tells us that God's ways are not our ways. And our ways in a university community would be that God would never give grace to a professor. And you say, well, no, that, that's not what I think. And I say, okay, fine, that, that's what I think. You know? Listen, professors, many of them, are seekers of truth. That's why they became professors. They love knowledge and they want truth. And it is true that some professors are devils from hell. That they have no love for truth, they hate it, and they try to seduce every student they have to blaspheme the living God. That's true. But that's not the norm in the academy. The norm in the academy is that it's filled with people who are ignorant of truth. But they started down the, down the path of the academy loving it. And so as Christians, we should love professors. We should love them. I've seen a number of professors who, in classes when Christians speak up, the professor actually begins to hunger for truth when he hears the testimony of a Christian in the class. And so don't ever be intimidated by professors, except in terms of your GPA, but That's kind of a game, you know. Lucas, you know it's true. You got, what was your GPA when you got done with IU? Come on. Lucas, tell us. Come on. Come on. Come on. This is my son-in-law, and we all know his GPA was 4.78. <laughs> so he laughs when I say the grades are a bit of a game, but of course my GPA was nothing close to that, so there you have it. So love your professors and realize that God is not thinking our thoughts. God does not make the judgments we make. God is not censorious of the academy the way we are. Sometimes you'll have to fight professors, and when you do, have courage. God's on your side. But love them. That's the first application. There was nothing to commend these scholars, nothing at all, except they sought truth and the Bible says that he is a rewarder of them who, what? Diligently seek him. Okay? And he rewarded the magi. All right? That's the first thing. The second thing is, don't make any mistake about it. Maybe most during the Christmas season, you are weighed by God to see whether you choose your family or him. Okay? And you think of those wise men. They come to Jerusalem. Where's the king of the Jews? They expect all of the city is looking for the king of the Jews. They think everybody's going to be talking about it. It's obvious it's up in the sky. They get there and they find not only that nobody knows, but also that nobody cares. As a matter of fact, they find that the news that the king of the Jews has been born is disturbing. And those magi had to decide whether they were idiots or all of Jerusalem was. Right? And they went for it. They went for it. You are put in a position constantly. And God warned you about it, that you have to choose between your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, and God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus said, I have come to set a man against his brother 
and a father against his son and a wife against her husband, we are constantly being weighed in the balances between our family and God. Constantly. And you say, wait a second, how on earth are you getting that from this text, right? Any of you smart enough to be asking that? Come on, raise your hand, come on. Come on, I know you're thinking that. Well, anyhow, okay, so, so here's what Matthew Henry says. He says, note, we must continue our attendance upon Christ though we be alone in it. Whatever others do, we must serve the Lord if they will not go to heaven with us, yet we must not go to hell with them. Come on, people. You know that during the holiday season, you're constantly put in a position of choosing between God and your loved ones. Right? I know it's true for me. I come from a Christian family. And it's not necessarily that your dad says to you, I want you to choose me over God, you know. Pharaoh said, come back and tell me so I can worship him too. You know, there's a lot of subterfuge. I wrote a blog post last night, and one paragraph out of how many? 35. I said, now be careful with these men because they lie to you. And as I got to the end of that one little paragraph, my wife is saying, you take that paragraph out. And I said, you're a woman, I'm a man, I ain't taking it out. (laughs) That paragraph is the most important paragraph in the whole thing. No, it probably isn't, but listen. Jesus said that we must give him our first allegiance. First. First. And he never hid that. And when his mother came to him, when he was in that crowded house, and there was no room for anybody else to get in, they were packed in with him so much, and she brought his brothers with her, and they sent word in that house saying, your mother and your brothers are outside, and this is the Blessed Virgin Mary. And how did Jesus respond to that? Jesus said, who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And then he said, those who do the will of my father. Come on. Am I your brother? I'm your brother. Are you my brother? You're my brother. So, in one sense, this is comforting to those of you who are not married or who are widows. You're not alone. We are your brothers and your sisters. And your mothers, your fathers, and your sons, and your daughters. We do a bad job of being that to you. But God surrounded you with a family. Okay? But in another sense, don't you dare let your parents, your children, alienate you from God. Because Jesus warned, he said, any man that's ashamed of me, in my words, in front of my father, I will be ashamed of him. Right? Right? And so we want to be, be with the Magi, and we want to set our face like flint. We want to be unreasonable when it comes to our hearts. We want to be odd when it comes to whether or not we're with the Jews in Jerusalem or with the Magi out in little Bethlehem, little town of Bethlehem. That's why I always love the parts of the Christmas carols where it gets personal instead of, you know, celebrating the birth of the King of, you know, the Son of God and everything. I love the Christmas carols where it comes to, to first person, you know, um, uh, I gotta think of my favorite. Um, oh holy, oh I think I might have mentioned this last week, but I'll mention it again. Oh holy child of Bethlehem, 
to send to us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angel, the great glad tidings tell, O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. And that's how you want to enter Christmas. God is your father, not your father. I am not your father. God is your father. Call no man father. Okay? So that's the final thing I want to leave with you, is be jealous for the father God during this Christmas season. Don't let anything else alienate you from him because he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. He has raised his son up from the dead and every knee will not bow before your father, your husband. Every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you don't honor your father. There are lots of ways of honoring your father without giving him the honor that's due to God. Right? Right? Hey? 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 Well, I mean, you guys are pathetic. <laughs> what did you say? Yeah, it's true. So let's pray. Father, every one of us is an idol maker, and there's no better idol than family values. So we give you our fathers and our mothers and our sons and our daughters and our grandchildren and our grandparents. And we pray that you will discipline our hearts so that they cling to Jesus. And that we will love and respect and honor our families because of the first place that you hold in our hearts. And teach us to love professors and academics, Father. And we pray that this church will be filled with Pharisees and professors who are being saved. And elders and pastors, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.